Part two, barricades to success. I'm gonna go off script again because I just wanna make sure you understand where you've already come. You understand your barricade, the thing that is stopping you from accomplishing goals, what makes soul grinding work for you. You understand what your work energy is, that tool that you can wield to get things done. Now you understand about 90% actions and how if you groundhog just those things, you can accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish. The rest of this book is all about the problems you're going to encounter as you try to do so, your barricades to success. So let's get going on the first one. Chapter six, working on the wrong thing. We all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. C.S. Lewis. I started writing this book over four years ago, but I could never finish it. This book is 60% story and 40% lessons learned because I wanted it to be practical rather than theoretical. I knew I hadn't yet finished living the story I wanted to put in this book, and there was one life lesson I had to complete first. The thing stopping me from finishing this book was my weight. Yep, it's time to get personal, real personal. We're actually having a conversation about the cellulite circling my belly. How could I write a book with the subtitle, Finish Everything You Start and Fearlessly Take On Any Goal, while I knew full well that I was hiding the one goal that has always sneered at me, that knocked me over so many times I can't remember them all. If I really meant what I have to say in this book, it was time for me to prove it myself. I'm not a blimp. I'm 5 feet 10 inches, 220 pounds, with an average amount of muscle, a significant belly, and cheeks that resemble Santa Claus, although they aren't nearly as wonderfully rosy. Significantly over a healthy weight. Years ago, on April 15, 2013, I committed to change. I remember the day specifically because I was at home sick watching the news of the horrific Boston Marathon bombing, where three people died and more than a dozen lost limbs from the blast. I think it was the continuous news coverage of the marathon over the next few weeks, combined with feeling sick from the flu that inspired me to get fit like those runners. While a sane person would get fit by getting an exercise DVD, I put my work energy into the fight. I wanted to take on a big goal with a measurable result. Remember, look ma, I can run a marathon too. I made two purchases. The first was a registration for the Top of Utah Marathon in Logan, Utah. As I was putting my ticket in the online shopping cart, I giggled to myself because I had a wonderfully devious idea. I'd buy two tickets instead of one and rope my wife into it. She's such a sucker. My second purchase was the book The Non-Runner's Marathon Trainer by David Whitsett. I literally just went to Amazon and typed marathon to see what stuff I should have, and the book popped up. I purchased the book the very next day after the Boston Marathon bombing, April 16, 2013. Emily and I got a babysitter and we went on our first running date. We drove over to the local high school and put on our gym clothes as I ignored the tag on my shirt which read XXL. I walked over to the starting line at the high school track. We wanted a baseline on how long it took us to run one mile so that we could know what pace to expect. At the time, we weren't doing any regular exercise. I started the timer on my iPhone and set it down hastily so I wouldn't waste a second before I began to run. All we needed to do was accomplish four laps around the track, one mile. 
I remember thinking that after the second lap, I was circling the drain of death, but I trudged on. At 10 minutes and 30 seconds, I fell across the finish line. It felt as if someone had taken a sledgehammer to my chest and my lungs were filled with fire. I was sure my next cough would bring up my left lung. How had I allowed myself to get in such a state of poor physical fitness that one mile was so difficult to run? I shouldn't have even broken a sweat. Ooh, I remember this. You continued to question yourself after this experience that you were wondering whether or not you would actually be able to finish. And I knew I would always be able to finish. And so I thought it was really strange that you were questioning whether or not it was an even possible thing to do. But why did you feel that way? I mean, you weren't a runner. I mean, we both ran a mile and I mean, maybe I was dying, but you at least didn't look like a spring chicken at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I always knew in my head that, of course, my body was stronger than my mind. I guess I hadn't learned that yet. We spent a few weeks just pushing ourselves to get to two or three miles on a single run so we could begin a traditional marathon training schedule. The schedule we decided on was 13 weeks. The book we bought advocated running three short runs per week and one long run. During the three shorter runs, we could just keep up our stamina and practiced increasing our pace. Then one day a week, we'd push ourselves as hard as we could to increase our maximum distance. We had a plan that we could simply groundhog into success. The runner's high is a real thing. I can't tell you how many people I've met who become addicted to running because of the sense of accomplishment they feel. Every morning, millions of people around the world wake up early, lace up their running shoes, put in earbuds, and run. I, personally, am not one of those people. I despised every single run, all of them. I despise the way it made my lungs feel. I despise the exertion, the sweat, the pain, the exercise of willpower. And I especially despise the dorky short shorts the sport requires and the fact that I had to apply anti-chafing lubrication on my inner thighs. Embarrassing. Waking up early and greasing up my inner thighs to prance around in Richard Simmons's shorts until exhaustion was not a great way to get me feeling good about my body. Oh, and I hate how public running is. Spending that many hours running around the streets near my home, everyone I knew saw me out there. I'm sure they thought, oh, how sweet. Chunky Jim thinks he's an athlete. And how brave of him to wear Richard Simmons's shorts. Some of those onlookers were more discreet. They'd say things like, hey, saw you running yesterday. Looked like you were working really hard. Um, yes, I was. I felt like dying, thank you for asking. I do not look elegant, sophisticated, nor respectable when I run. Running is stupid. For the rest of my life, I run from zombies and for no other cause. None at all. I continued running anyway. After all, I decided to groundhog this routine and I wasn't about to ruin the plot of the movie. Plus, as I've mentioned, I'm a sucker for any goal which allows me to compete with myself and track my progress with a number. If I'm honest, my main motivation was the picture I could post on Facebook of me finishing a marathon. My work energy is so childish. I could clearly see how far I ran each time and how long it took me to do it. So secretly, I was in love with the goal at the same time that I despised it. Emily and I kept up our marathon training schedule diligently. We took turns watching the kids while the other would go out and run. 
If we couldn't convince ourselves to get out in the morning, we'd force ourselves in the afternoon, even during the August heat. One of us would limp in the front door, red-faced and exhausted, and just fall down on the living room floor, unable to speak for a solid 20 minutes. That was the cue for the other person to lace up and head out on their run. We learned not to say things like, I'm back from my run, so it's your turn now, because those words were too agonizing to hear. During the forming phase of our goal, we were all energy. We dreamed our goal and designed a day that we would groundhog until success. But the problems began during the long phase of training. The demons in your mind want you to stop and return to life as a lazy lump of lard. The troubles hit after about seven weeks of marathon training. It was still extremely difficult, but we began feeling like we were on track to meet our goal. Being on track is often the most dangerous thing that can happen when working toward a goal. On track usually means a storm is coming. When we see that we're on track and yet a tremendous amount of work is still required, it can be easy to let our willpower begin to relax. We silently tell ourselves, okay, all I have to do is continue and I'll get there. That's not the kind of attitude required to punch your legs forward after mile seven of a difficult run. The storm came indeed. We skipped some runs. We ruined the plot of the movie and stopped groundhogging. We walked the last few miles of our long run some days and we didn't stick to the training schedule when we were traveling. That's how on track so quickly turns into far behind. Then we see that we're far behind on reaching the goal and so we quit thinking it's impossible. It was only my work energy that kept me going. We had a ticket to run a marathon and I'd committed to the goal. We had to finish somehow. In the book we'd purchased, I read one trick that helped. When I began to feel extremely exhausted and near the point of slowing my run to a walk, I told myself, I've used up 30% of my energy and I'm more than halfway done with this run. Somehow, that trick really worked. I just viewed my energy as a metered amount on a scale and compared that scale to how many more miles were left to run. It made me feel like I could easily continue. Yet, we were far behind schedule. We had anticipated completing training runs of up to 21 miles before the marathon. Our thinking was that if we could run 21 miles in practice, we could probably push ourselves the extra 5.2 miles in an actual marathon to finish the race. 14 days before the marathon, we looked at the training calendar. We hadn't even come close to finishing what we'd planned. We ran our longest run to date, 8 miles. At the end of the 8-mile run, we were completely spent. We had nothing left in the tank, but we were committed, so we continued. Seven days before the marathon, we had one last chance at a long training run to push our max range. We determined on Saturday morning, I'd start at 5 a.m. and run as far as I could, then Emily would start as soon as I finished. Somehow, in a week, we needed to run 26.2 miles, but the furthest we'd gone up until that point was merely eight miles. I drove over to Lake Lowell, only a few miles from our home, and parked the car. I wasn't looking forward to the run and consequently wasn't in a good mental state, so I foolishly hid the keys in the little door that covers the gas cap. Yeah, the little door that locks when you close it. I was locked out of the car, so I figured I might as well just run for a long time. There was no car to which I could return. It was a perfect morning for running with a nip in the air. I put in headphones and listened to audiobooks or podcasts for most of the run, switching to country music when I needed a boost of energy. 
I began running around the lake. The first five or six miles went by without much effort. I had done that many times before. Miles seven and eight were tougher, but I'd also done that, so I pushed through. I was determined to get a long run in since I was behind on my training schedule, so I pushed myself with sheer will through miles 9 through 11. At mile 11, I was entirely gassed. I couldn't move another step. I had nothing left. I called Emily to pick me up, but she missed the phone call, so I just kept running. Eventually, I reached her. I can't go on. Pick me up. I was 12 miles from home, so it took her a while to reach me. By then, I'd reached 13 miles. I nearly collapsed when I fell into the car. I was so weak and exhausted and in pain. I had absolutely nothing left in the energy tank. Emily went out on a run right after me. Her experience was nearly identical to mine. She called at mile 12, and by the time I picked her up, she had gone nearly 14. I had to make a quick stop by the local Thai restaurant before picking her up. It wasn't my fault. Thai curry was on my mind. That was seven days before our marathon, where we were supposed to run 26.2 miles. A half marathon nearly killed us, yet seven days later, we needed to double our max capacity. It looked as though it would be nearly impossible. I was discouraged. I'd put in so much work. Sure, I wasn't perfect, we had slacked off during the storm phase of the goal, but we'd come so far since that first one-mile run at the high school track. Now we were only seven days away from the race, and the furthest we could accomplish was only half of a marathon. Obviously, it would be impossible to double our range in just seven days. But I had committed to the goal. I had bought my ticket, and we were going to that race. On the morning of the race, we stayed at a hotel near Logan, woke up at 5 a.m., and got on a bus with dozens of other runners to head up the mountain to the starting line. It was a crisp 45 degrees when the starting gun initiated the race. Another 913 people ran with us to complete the 26.2-mile torture. I flew through the first 13 miles. I remember crossing the halfway point and being amazed that just seven days earlier, I was entirely spent at that distance. I continued running. At mile 15, I began to tire. I repeatedly lied to myself about my internal energy tank. Oh, I'm only 30% tired now. I have 70% of my energy left and the race is more than halfway over, so I'm going to make it. Thinking of my energy reserves like a gas tank was the only way I could go on because intuitively I knew my body could be 100% capable of finishing the race. Tens of thousands of people finish marathons each year who are old, overweight, very young, etc. Knowing my body was capable, the problem with finishing was 100% mental. I had to force my mind to shut off and just allow myself to keep going without convincing myself to stop or turn back. Again, I must point out what running does to the mind. You talk to yourself as if you're another person and have arguments with yourself. It isn't right, and neither are the shorts. I stopped at the aid stations and sprayed this really awesome stuff on my thighs that felt cold and made them go numb. No idea what that magic potion was, but all the serious marathon runners seemed to use it a lot, so I indulged. Side note, do not spray said magic potion on your tongue out of curiosity. It will make it numb. Lesson learned. At mile 21, I hit a wall. Runners understand the wall in a way that anyone who hasn't done it probably never will. 
One step, you're tired but still going, and all of the sudden, your legs just stop involuntarily. Suddenly, you find yourself walking. You scream at your brain, no, as soon as I start walking, it's 10 times harder to get running again. Do not walk. Do not walk. We'll have to cover the same distance, but it will be much harder. And yet, you walk. I called Emily to tell her I just couldn't go on. I had nothing left in the tank. I'd lost track of her at some point during the race. I wasn't sure if she was ahead or behind me. She answered the phone with, I can't go on. I have nothing left. We both hit the wall. If there had been a bus anywhere along the path at that point, I probably would have taken it. Both feet were bleeding in multiple spots. I'd hit a point of complete mental exhaustion. I got so angry at my own mind from pushing myself to the max that I remember coming close to ripping out my earbuds and throwing my phone into a river as I crossed a bridge. I couldn't tolerate even one more beat of motivating music. We were entirely spent. And yet, we continued on. There really was no other option. Yes, we had hit a wall, but now our backs were against that wall, and we were about to fight through it. We walked a mile, then got so angry at the race that we sprinted a mile, then jogged, then nearly crawled across the finish line. We finished the race in just over five hours, which was nearly three hours slower than the race winner. Our months of training didn't suddenly turn us into runners. The excitement of the marathon did not even make me wonder if I'd ever want to run a marathon again. I knew I didn't. Running is painful and boring, and I'd much rather play sports for exercise. Yet the only way to describe the feeling of crossing that finish line with Emily was euphoria. More than just relief that we could stop running, it was euphoric. I laid down on the grass in the park at the finish line and committed to simply lying there on that spot permanently. I still had a few months until winter, and I was sure I could order food from there. Um, yes, I'd like to order two bowls of Thai curry. If you could please just bring them to my little spot on the grass near the finish line and insert each bowl into one of my giant Santa Claus cheeks, that'd be great. Okay, yeah, see you again at dinner time. After an hour, I peeled myself up, took off my shoes, and wandered over to our car. We drove the two miles to the hotel, and I laid down. Standing up to shower was entirely out of the question, so I must apologize to whomever the next hotel guest was in room 204. I'm sure they washed the sheets, but I'm not sure the sheets could have recovered from what I put them through. As I closed my eyes, I honestly felt concerned that I might not wake up. That may sound like hyperbole. It was not. It took 10 days for the soreness of the marathon to wear off, but as time passed, I felt very proud of that medal. It was by far the most difficult physical thing I'd accomplished, and it gave me a sense that I could take on absolutely any goal in the future with the work energy formula. In the ensuing years, I've often thought about that marathon training and wondered at what the human mind can do. Yes, the mind, not the body. 14 days before the marathon, the longest run I could do was 8 miles despite exerting myself to the extreme. Seven days later, I ran 13 miles on those same legs. Another seven days later, I ran on those same legs, in that same body, in those same shoes, and went for 26.2 miles. How is that possible? Did I suddenly grow double the leg muscle in seven days to miraculously double my range? I seriously doubt that. Did my lungs or my heart suddenly double their capacity? Of course not. 
The truth is that we all live in a space far, far from our capabilities. The Creator, our spiritual Father, placed us on this earth with unlimited potential, and we allow ourselves to live far below our privileges. While the marathon was empowering, it was not the end goal. The goal was to get down to a healthy weight. That day I was sick, lying on the couch watching the Boston Marathon. I reached a breaking point where I was prepared to make sacrifices to achieve my goal. After the soreness of the marathon wore off, I stepped on the scale and saw 220 pounds. I had not lost a single pound, not one. How could this be possible? I got a little smarter though. I recognized that exercise alone simply did not provide an answer. I burned calories, but the exercise made me hungry, and without realizing it, I must have been eating more. So I began focusing on consumption. I cut out all desserts and sugars and cut back on the portions I ate. This went on for months of working toward the goal. Still 220 pounds. No change. I told myself that if I couldn't accomplish losing weight in two more months, I'd go to a doctor and get checked out to see what was wrong. The two months came and went until I humbled myself and went in. The doctor tested me and got back with the results. My body was perfectly fine and nothing was keeping me from achieving a healthy weight. The doctor prescribed a weight loss pill and promised it would help me lose weight, but the effect would only last two or three months. Then it would wear off and I'd have to do the hard work of maintaining it. I convinced myself I would have no problem whatsoever in maintaining a lower weight. I just needed a jump start. There's no way I'd allow myself to eat right through the pill and gain weight. It worked incredibly well. I dropped nearly 30 pounds in three months. The pill simply stopped my appetite nearly entirely. I had no desire to eat. I stopped taking the pill when the doctor asked me to and focused all my effort on not gaining the weight back. But it did. My weight skyrocketed over the next five months, placing me almost back to where I started. I was up to 207, which was only 13 pounds down from my starting point, and I was able to maintain 207 for a few years comfortably. I lost track of my goal, though. I have a digital scale that tracks my weight and allows me to see my historical weights going back 10 years. I gained about 3 pounds each year at a slow pace until I found myself right back at 220 pounds. It was time for war. Nobody can outwillpower a goal like I can. I was not going to allow myself to be mediocre. I decided it was time to begin lifting weights. Vast amounts of cardio and running a marathon was not a standalone answer. Unmitigated willpower and maintaining a quick pill-induced weight loss was also not an answer. I determined that I needed a balanced approach. I needed to watch my caloric intake while simultaneously gaining muscle. If I gained muscle and built my body, it would use up more calories and make it much easier to maintain the weight loss when I got there. I knew nothing about lifting weights, so I started shopping for a personal trainer. I read the websites of every personal trainer within a 20-mile radius of my home and settled on one with pages of inspiring testimonials and before and after pictures. I laughed because I'd taken so many before pictures over the previous four years. There's so much hope in a before picture, but then six months later, I would take another before picture as I began the next round of diet or exercise that would surely be the silver bullet. I walked into the office of my personal trainer for the first day. I didn't have to swallow my pride, I had to gag on it as I crammed it down my throat. 
It was really hard walking in there, 60 pounds overweight, past the other superhuman weightlifters to the office of my personal trainer to ask for help. Most of their clients were preparing for competitions, and there came Santa Claus cheeks to try and burn off his Twinkies. Other than the more pinkish shade of his skin, the trainer very closely resembled the Hulk. He was a towering mass of lumps of muscle. He was about six foot three. Oh, funny, you thought I meant he was six foot three inches tall? No, no, that was the circumference of just one of this dude's biceps. The man was an impressive physical specimen. I sat down in his office and unloaded everything. The marathon, the pills, the unmitigated willpower, the calorie tracking, everything. I just wanted the change, and I would do exactly what he told me to do to get there. I'd pay him whatever it takes. I signed the contract for a very expensive personal training program. He'd created a precise meal plan for me and stand right beside me for every single rep of weightlifting until I reached my goal. We were in this together. Two days later, I returned for my first workout. I had never done any real weightlifting before, so he had to show me every single step. I remember the first time I laid down to the bench to do a dumbbell chest press, and I couldn't figure out how to lift the heavy weights into position on my chest. They were too heavy to lift up to my chest from the lying position. I looked up at my trainer after three or four attempts, and he had a most amused and bewildered look. Eventually, I stood back up and used the momentum of me falling onto the bench to swing the weights up into position on my chest and catch them. Seeing this, the Hulk said, that was the most ridiculous and dangerous way I've ever seen anyone move a dumbbell. Nice, way to make Santa feel welcome. Apparently, when you sit down on the bench, you're supposed to rest the dumbbells on your knees and then kick up your knees to push them up to your chest after laying down. Who knew? I thought my toss the weight and catch it method was pretty clever, though admittedly ineffective. Wall sits, lunges, chest presses, and Romanians, the stupid names for the torturous exercises only added insult to my pain. After my first one-hour weightlifting session, I felt weak in the knees as I slowly hobbled out of my car. I sat down in the front seat of my aging Nissan Sentra, and immediately the windshield fogged up from my hot, sweaty, giant Santa Claus cheeks. I looked in the rearview mirror at myself and blood was pouring from my nose. It was the first bloody nose I'd had since I was a child. I exerted myself to a breaking point. I just sat there in my car for 20 minutes before I felt I could drive home. I was absolutely going to achieve my goal. And it wouldn't be a lack of exertion on my part that kept me from it. The workouts didn't get any easier over time and the soreness didn't subside in time for the next workout to come. I had to take ibuprofen every single day to push through the pain. Because my primary goal was weight loss, my trainer set up a routine optimized for that. He hadn't worked with overweight people before since most of his business was focused on preparing people for bodybuilding competitions, but he felt confident he knew what I should do. Instead of doing eight to 12 reps like a traditional weightlifting routine, we would do four sets of 40 reps for each lift, with a generous three to five minute pause between lifts. I would also raise my calories significantly to provide fuel for my muscle growth. No matter what the personal trainer asked of me, I gave 110%. I gave all of myself for many months. I was shocked at how much work it was, but I knew I would reach my goal. The Hulk obviously knew how to get fit, so I could trust him, right? 
I have to go off script here because I forgot to include a detail. When I was doing the physical training with the Hulk, my legs would be so sore. I mean, it, it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. I would be so sore that I could not walk the next day. In fact, there was one time I was on a date with my wife and we ended up at Target like all great romantic dates do. And I had to go in one of those motorized carts to go around the store. I was in so much pain to just walk around. I had just pushed myself so hard with him, but the Hulk just was an awesome personal trainer. He gave me so much confidence that I would achieve my goal because of what he had accomplished himself with his own physical fitness. All right, back to the script. It took me eight months of the most grueling physical labor of my life but the day finally came that I stepped on the scale, nervously looked down at the numbers, and read, the same weight as I had before starting the program, 220. I was completely shattered, but I knew the scale didn't tell the whole story, so I pulled out my before picture and compared it to the after. The after picture looked like a photocopy of the before. My arms looked the same. My chest looked the same. There was the tiniest little lump of muscle in my calves, but other than that, I looked precisely identical to the before picture. I was still the same weight and appeared to have the same amount of fat. How was it possible? After a few very frustrating months, I finally got the gumption to try again. This time, at the recommendation of my sister-in-law, I tried a meal delivery service. I was interested in the concept of having five delivered meals a day so that I didn't have to choose what to eat. It was all there in a box for me. I could just grab one of the packages, rip it open, eat, and know that I was on track. Simple. Then, one meal a day, I'd eat a piece of chicken and some broccoli. Dead simple. I read about it online and watched all of the YouTube videos and was getting excited about it. Then, I went to order the meal service and stopped. I saw on their website that it was an MLM, a multi-level marketing business where the company has sellers who make commissions not only for their sales, but for the salespeople they recruit to the business. I hate MLMs. Oh no, I just said the dreaded acronym. My wife knows that I can't resist going on my MLM tangent. I see it all the time. Emily is constantly getting invited to a party one of her friends is throwing. The women show up, then the host introduces her really successful friend who drives a Mustang and is going to show us about her cute jewelry business. Arg! I'd rather drive a pencil through my eye. I digress, but only to explain my disgust when I found out that this was an MLM. But my sister-in-law, who was not selling the stuff, had given me a good review of the service, so I was interested. I swallowed my MLM aversion and called my local coach. Ugh, I hated that they were called coaches. I would have felt much better if they were just called salespeople. Anyway, I called my coach slash salesperson. It didn't take me long on the phone with my new salesperson to change my mind. She said something that stuck with me. She asked me how long I'd been overweight and the story of how I got to the point that I called her. I told her that I tried and tried so many different things and that I was a hard worker and really pushed myself, but just couldn't find what worked for my body. She said, yes, we'll need to find out what works for your body, but, but more importantly, I want to know why you've allowed yourself to get unhealthy in the first place and why you allowed yourself to remain unhealthy for so many years. That hurt to hear, but I knew the question was only pointed because it was on point. The answer was that I simply convinced myself that I was doing my best that whole time. In reality, I hadn't committed to the 90% of the work. 
Yes, I nearly died in my bed after running a marathon and survived months of abuse from the Hulk, but that's an optimization of the body compared to the most important part, regulating food intake, which achieves 90% of the goal. Yes, I'd cut out sugars before and carbs, etc., but I hadn't simply reduced the amount of food I was eating. I fully committed to the program. All I had to do was wait for the box of food to come, then open it up and eat five of their snacks a day, then eat a piece of chicken and broccoli for dinner. I had to swallow my pride when they insisted on calling the snacks fuelings and hearing the marketing people in the videos use the phrase gentle fat burning state every other sentence. It drove me nuts, but I was committed and I wouldn't break. I also didn't like it when my health coach texted me and checked in to see how I was doing, but over time, I actually found her to be very encouraging and helpful. My weight began to plummet. I was hangry. Oh, believe me, I was hangry. Gentle fat-burning state was completely the wrong phrase to describe how I felt. I felt like my body was eating itself as I wasted away, dying in the desert for want of food. For the first 18 days, I felt constantly on the verge of losing my patience at people around me with no provocation. It was all I could do to resist grabbing my kids' crackers as I passed them on the kitchen counter. Then things changed. My body adapted, and my mind adapted. On day 19 of my journaling, I noticed that I didn't really feel hungry. My energy was back, and it wasn't difficult to turn down other foods. I was absolutely perfect on that diet. No days off, no cheating. And you know what? It worked. I'm now a healthy 175 pounds down 35 pounds from the 220 pounds starting weight. I went from a size 38 waist to a size 32. I wore an XX large t-shirt and now I wear a medium. I still have a slight muffin top and a little pooch, but I'm at a healthy weight and moving in the right direction. I've learned so much about health over the last few years. I learned what didn't work. I learned cardio is helpful, but by no means sufficient. I learned that counting calories is really tough to do accurately and that meal plans on the internet are usually wrong since I followed so many without losing a pound. I learned that my personal trainer was either inept or lazy. Looking back, I realized that I was incredibly sore without reaching my goals because of the routine he had chosen. We'd do 35 to 40 reps in four sets frequently. That's very far off the mark from what most knowledgeable trainers would do. It was probably because he just didn't want to rearrange the gym and set up a new machine to move the lifts around more frequently. I learned that training when incredibly sore is rather pointless because the muscle's already torn and needs time to heal properly. I learned that the meal plan I was given may have been great for someone with a significant amount of muscle already, but it was a terrible plan for my body. More than anything, I learned something about motivation that I had never realized. While not all of the plans I'd made were successful, I was able to follow some of them perfectly and others not at all. Since my primary work energy is overcoming hard things to get praise, I needed a plan that I could feel convinced would lead me to success if I merely followed it. To other people, that doesn't work at all. If they see all of the work ahead of them that needs to be done, they feel intimidated and shrink immediately. For me, just trying to track my own calories and setting my own caloric intake goals failed because I wasn't sure I was right on the numbers. The more specific the program was and the more confidence I had that it was the most efficient path, even if it was far more difficult than other plans, the more I was able to follow it. I needed to be motivated in the right way for myself. Because my work energy is achievement 
and I thrive on accomplishing things and I want people to be proud of me, it was actually better for me to have an intimidating and difficult plan so I could, in the end, say, look at me, ma. Yes, I know it sounds childish, but that is my work energy. In the end, something deep down inside of me must be looking for praise even though I don't recognize it. If you think about it, though, all of our work energies seem childish on the outside. So what finally worked for me, I focused on the one thing that gave me 90% of the result. I didn't even exercise while I was dieting. I simply ate less food on a perfect strict schedule. I focused 100% of my energy on reducing my food intake and that got me 90% of the way there. Then once the weight was lost, I could focus 100% of my energy on what's needed now, not looking skinny fat, but gaining some muscle definition. Once I identified the one action that would get me 90% of the way there, I simply groundhogged that day until success. Because I had correctly identified the 90% action of regulating food intake, I saw rapid progress and thus maintaining the daily action was easy. It's easy to work hard when you see rapid progress. You may read this chapter and argue with my plan. You may be far more fit than I am and know a lot more about optimizing weight loss and health than I do. That's the problem, however. I was trying to optimize things by going the extra mile and running a marathon and lifting weights with the Hulk while I was losing weight and using pills and supplements to expedite the process. There is not a thing wrong with any of those things, but optimizations should never be implemented during the groundhog phase of a goal when you just need to get the bulk of the result. Once you've achieved 90% of the goal, it will likely take optimizations to achieve that last 10%. I include this chapter in the book not to completely embarrass myself by talking about the thigh greasing, short shorts, and my belly. I include it to warn you about focusing effort on the wrong thing. What's the right thing? Before you can design a day and groundhog it into success, you must first be absolutely certain that the day contains no good ideas or optimizations. Only focus on the most crucial aspect of the work that will achieve 90% of the result. Do not forget or stop your Groundhog Day once you've achieved 90% of the result and need to begin focusing on optimizations for the remaining 10% of the goal, though. If you want to win a local election, focus only on personally speaking to as many people as you can. The design of your yard signs, debate prep, flyers, raising funds, and everything else can wait. Focus only on the action that achieves 90% of the result. If you want to climb Everest, put on a 100-pound pack and hike up the steepest hill in your city each morning before work while wearing an altitude mask. Studying routes, choosing your guide, fretting over which ice axe to choose, and all other considerations can wait until you reach the optimization period after you've achieved 90% of the goal. If you want to buy a bigger house, focus only on saving the big $500 chunk each month instead of worrying about the $2 smoothie here and there. You can scrimp and save every last penny, but if it drives you crazy and pushes you to fall off the horse and book a $5,000 vacation, it won't amount to much. My brother Paul ran an Ironman race a few years ago. After a 2.4 mile swim in frigid water, he raced to the changing tent to get off his wetsuit and put on his dry clothes. His hands were so cold and he was so tired that he was shaking uncontrollably trying to get the zipper down on his suit. 
an older man walked up to him and put his hand on Paul's shoulder. He said, son, I've run over 20 of these races. I'll tell you one thing. You are not going to win this race. Focus on finishing. So sit down there for five minutes in the warm tent and get your temperature back up. At first, he was taken aback by the lack of confidence the man had in him, but he soon realized it was true. This was a 15-hour race, and 30 seconds of fumbling with a zipper would not catapult him onto the podium. His mission was to finish. By ignoring the optimization of fumbling with his zipper and pushing through the cold, he was able to calm down and focus on simply finishing the race. If he'd pushed himself to optimize for every second, it still wouldn't have put him on the podium, and he may not have even finished the race. Action Step 6. Identify potential optimizations of your goal, and skip them. Set aside all optimizations until you've achieved 90% of the success. Reevaluate the 90% action to ensure it will accomplish the correct result. Write a list of all the actions you could take to help you achieve your goal. Identify which action is the most vital to get you to your goal. Then, separate out all of the optimizations into another section to work on only after you've achieved 90% of your result. Here's an example. John is 35 and unmarried. He feels it is time for him to settle down and start a family. He has dated plenty of girls, but he hasn't yet found the right one. John makes a list of all the actions he could take to help him reach his goal. Get involved in community organizations to meet women, lose weight, become financially stable, go dancing on Friday nights, go out with friends more often, get some new clothes to look better, save up for a wedding ring, go on dates. We can debate about which action is most important, but John feels he spends plenty of time hanging out with groups of people. Going on actual one-on-one -on -one dates is the most important thing he could do. John then designs a day to achieve his goal. Each day on his lunch break, he will text at least two women he wouldn't normally text. On Tuesdays, he'll start attending a singles group he found on Facebook, and over the entire week, he'll work toward finding a date for Saturday night. Because he's been texting people all week, that shouldn't be too tough. Going on actual dates is the thing he's determined will get him 90% of the way there. Now, John simply groundhogs that goal until success. All of the other items on his list, like saving up for a ring and becoming financially stable, are good things to optimize, but they are likely to divert his attention from the most important action, going on dates. John gets 90% of the way there, and then, in the finishing phase, he can work on other optimizations to prepare him for marriage and starting a family. It wouldn't help John to get married if he got a job at night delivering pizzas to save up for a wedding ring and then never even met the girl he wanted to marry. I want to go off script a little bit to give you a little bit more of the experience of what it was like for me as I was working toward my health goal. It, this was the most frustrating thing I have ever worked on in my whole life. It was just, I worked so hard at things and it just wasn't achieving the goal. I, I, I asked myself afterward, like, did I know all along that really it was all about regulating food intake, like that that was the 90%? And I think I did. But because of the way I view things and just a marathon or working really hard with a personal trainer, that seems more attractive than just something really simple. So whatever your goal is, really take some time. 
Because you haven't achieved the goal before, it may not be obvious to you what the 90% is. And that's where you just need to study and really think through what it will take to achieve the goal. Go talk to people who have achieved the goal and just ask them straight out, what is the one most important thing I could do to get toward the goal? With almost anything in life, there's one thing that if you do that one thing, you'll get most of the way there. So I just want to encourage you, whatever your goal is, take the time before you start putting in effort to truly understand what is important. I do not want to see anyone listening to this book getting all pumped up about their dreams and then spinning their wheels, sometimes for years, and not achieving them. Find out what the 90% is for you.